Welcome to The Queerness, an LGBTQ podcast produced by San Francisco Pride from our studios, gazing upon the mercifully smoke-free skies of our magical city. I'm your host, Peter Astrid Kane, and I'm San Francisco Pride's communications person. I also use they, them pronouns. In the episode you're about to hear, our guest is a genuine icon, Franco Stevens, the founding publisher and once again proprietor of the famous lesbian magazine Curve. Established three decades ago in 1991, what became Curve originally ran under the name Deneuve, but really coincidentally sharing a name with a famous Academy Award-winning Parisian famous for her roles in The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Dancer in the Dark. In 2010, Stephen sold Curve to Avalon Media, only to buy it back again earlier this year and run it as a nonprofit, in time not only with the magazine's 30th anniversary, but also a documentary film called Ahead of the Curve, shot by the Oakland-based Emmy Award-winning lesbian filmmaker Rivka Beth Meadow, who is also the creative partner of Stevens's wife, Jen Raynan. In its latest chapter, Curve has broadened its focus to serve not only lesbians, but queer women, trans women, and non-binary people of all races, ages, and abilities, along with a partnership with NLGJA, the National Association of LGBTQ Journalists. Nonetheless, Curve still very much has its finger on the pulse of lesbian culture in the United States. So Franco, Thank you so much for being here with us on The Queerness. Thank you so much for having me. How exciting. Start out, if you would, by giving us an idea of what exactly is going on with Curve right now. I would say that, you know, we, we I purchased back the magazine and I donated it to the newly formed Curve Foundation. So the Curve Foundation in its entirety is going to decide what the next iteration of Curve will be. And right now we're really focusing on the existing archives. So if you go and try to search articles that ran in Curve in, say, 1995, you probably won't find those on the web. And if they're not available on Google, well, then as much, they might not have, have existed. So trying to get all 30 years of Deneuve and Curve uh, archived, searchable online for free uh, is really a big goal of ours. The other thing we're doing is if you take a look at our website, curvemag.com, you'll see that it looks very different. We took a retro look, kind of went back to the old Curve logo and putting the L word back in the tagline because it went away for a while. Well, just take a look at the website and you'll get an idea. What we're kind of doing is something I don't think a lot of people are doing is we're taking articles and interviews uh, and news stories that ran throughout the 30 years and doing an update. You know, where are those people now? What are they working on? How has Been in Curve changed their trajectory? To be clear, your role is a bit chairperson of the board, right? You're you're neither running the foundation or the magazine on a day-to-day basis? Nor am I the, the, the chair of the foundation. So the foundation at this point is a fiscally sponsored program. Um, so we are not technically allowed to have board members. Uh, we have an advisory council that's, read by, that's led by our initial executive director, uh, Jasmine Sudarkasa, who is a force of nature, and a bunch of other folks that mostly Kate Kendall from uh, previously NCLR put together. I am not the leader of the tribe anymore, nor can I be uh, can I be that physically. So this advisory council, I assume, at least for the time being, you're meeting on Zoom or online. Definitely. Yeah. Like what what is a meeting 
look like? Is it, I'm sure it's very orderly and there's business, but is there a lot of reminiscing and you know sharing of stories? I don't know how much reminiscing they are because we don't want to just target people who look like me, right? Um, a cis white woman who def- defines themselves as queer or lesbian. We want to represent the whole of our uh, women's community and having those people on the advisory council you know, no one can tell your story like you can tell your story, right? So, you know, I don't want people that can reminisce about what it was like to be a cisgendered white lesbian in 1990. That was done. Let's move on to, you know, more inclusion. So I want to hear what other people have to say about the the issues that we should be trying to move forward with the foundation. Well, who are some some writers that you're interested in reading and following these days? Well, not so not so much writers, but you mentioned um, NLGJA and the cohort, uh, the first Curve Award nominees uh, have been announced, which is very exciting. And I'm really interested to read during the course of their um, their cohort what they what they will be working on. So that program will not only provide, uh, monetary a monetary award, but it'll provide networking and mentorship uh, as well. I have to say, when you said that the archives were kind of in limbo or probably permanently inaccessible, I mean, that, that kind of hits home with me because I used to be the former editor, or I used to be the editor of SF Weekly, and it's been around as long as I've been alive. It's 40 years old, but there's like a giant gap I mean, there there really are no archives. There really is no repository of old issues. There's things that are online that go back to like the early 2000s. But I tried and tried and tried to find, you know, copies from way back when, and they just they simply don't exist anymore. That's crazy. I mean, think about it. It's like so much of San Francisco history is is in that it, it you know the publication really. Yeah. Uh, um, did you know that? Um, I think it's the BAR did a project to archive their entire... Um... Yeah, for their 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. They're rerunning kind of prominent issues, I think, either if not once a week or, you know, pretty frequently. I mean, I'm I'm just so jealous of their ability to do that, you know, like one or two changes in corporate ownership, three or four office moves, and it's just amazing what, what gets lost. Absolutely. You know, I'm totally there with you. If we can hardly find, you know, the few hundred copies of Danube and Curve. I couldn't imagine putting together, finding how many weekly pages of a weekly <laughs> publication there there are and right? that have been missing over 40 years. 40 years, 52 a year. That's more than 2,000 single issues alone. I mean, there's no way that that exists anywhere. Right? But it would it would be like lovely if somebody had just been like, hey, I found a box of, you know, 1986. You know, that that's interesting that you say that because I didn't even have all the issues myself. So some I had to, you know, buy on eBay. Some I had to reach out to, you know, old readers and old writers. And it's crazy to kind of put the word out there and just see who comes answering, really. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have every single issue yet. So we're still working on that. So if anybody listening has like copies in their garage that they want to get rid of, you know, hit us up. Maybe we need them. Hey, somebody just found 
Betsy Ross's third husband's diary in a garage in Marin two centuries after it was written. So you never know. You never you, know what might turn never. up. That's right. I mean, that's in a, I can see that being immensely frustrating, right? Because you want all of those issues. You want them. But yeah. like, it's kind of fun to, to source them. It would be like traveling the world to see every Caravaggio or just like, you know, there's only so many. You, you'll get them someday. Right. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know about other dikes, but man, I'm bad at throwing stuff away. So it's a, the only reason I don't have every issue is, you know, I think because when I sold the magazine, um, I was in such bad health that I couldn't mm-hmm. actually go and, you know, make sure that there was a full set. And I'm sure I know you said you want to keep the focus on the present, but I, ha- I have to ask you. In your attempts to acquire every back issue, have you encountered a piece of journalism or a photo spread or just something that either made you laugh or cry or smile or remind you of going to press like three hours past deadline? Like, was there any kind of, you know, Proustian Madeleine moment while holding one of these back issues in your hand? Oh, my gosh. Every single issue that I touched brought back crazy memories, whether it was, you know, trying to go to press while I was you know, at some women's festival in the middle of nowhere without any internet and having to drive, you know, 50 minutes to find a phone to make sure that I could sign off on things to remembering back about the people who contributed that are no longer with us. That's very sweet. Yeah. To switch subjects, you were actually present for San Francisco Pride's movie night at Oracle Park in June, at which we screened a couple of movies chosen by Frameline. Um, How was that experience? We were glad to have you. Oh my gosh, that experience was surreal. Imagine being a baseball fan and getting to walk onto the the, the field there. And when I say walk, I mean roll because I'm in a wheelchair. But I was so in awe of like addressing the crowd that I'm sure I said some really stupid thing. (laughs) And not to mention that I was... um, I had my service dog with me and he was wearing uh, a faux hawk, a a rainbow colored mohawk. So people were just probably like, you know, what's up with this weirdo and and her weird dog? I I mean, it's possible some people had that thought, but I feel like that crowd would be a pretty sympathetic crowd, would understand why why there'd be a rainbow faux hawk dog on the baseball field. I have a question. So is that something? Something that's going to happen next year? Do you know? Um, I mean, I think we would love it. We would also love for next year for COVID to be far enough behind us that we can mount, you know, a traditional San Francisco Pride. But I mean, I I had a great time. I am not a baseball fan and I have never spent so much time at a stadium as I had like for preparation for that event and the event itself. And honestly, like it was way more fun than I thought it would be. I mean, I knew it would be fun, but it was even more fun. And oh, it was we totally got really fun. great feedback. And yeah. so I would, I, you know, opera opera in the park happens year after year. I would love it if we did that again. Right. Just not instead of pride, just in addition to pride. I, I am, I'm on team Franco on this proposal. Excellent. Here, so yeah. Anytime anyone's on team Franco, I'm like right on. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned right before uh, we started recording that your very first San Francisco Pride, and then I rudely cut you off because I said, no, don't tell me now. Tell me when, when we're running. But uh, what is your what is your you know overall history with, with the organization? So my first San Francisco Pride was in 1989. And Pride was 
um, in the Castro and then turned down to Market Street. And I just remember, you know, I don't even know if I remember this correctly. I just remember being so overwhelmed with joy and I wasn't out at the time. Um, I just remember thinking, oh, these gay people, they really can, you know, like do it upright. And I didn't know that it was, you know, had anything to do with celebrating the, you know, the Stonewall riots. And, um, you know, I was, I think I was like 20 at the time, had just moved to San Francisco, I was still married to a man. And, uh, you know, I just remember it touching me and thinking, oh, this is super cool. But why am I here as a straight person? You know, oh, yeah, I want to be supportive. The music's better. That was what my what my boss at the time, you know, not at the time, but a boss of mine when he was being caught at in gay bars and at gay events. That was his thing. Oh yeah, I went. Hey, I, I like the music. I was an an you know army lieutenant's wife, so like I definitely did not want to be caught there because that would look badly on him. Wow, that is yeah. that is intense. I mean, for all you know. Anytime people are like, oh, why do we need pride? It's the 2020s. And then you hear these stories that are still happening now of young people going to their first pride. And like, you know, we are very aware of the criticism that is given at us. But at the same time, whose heart does not melt hearing of a young person having their first, you know, knowing very little history, maybe, and just having no one to go with and working up the courage to go to their first pride. And yours, yours was here. Exactly. You know, it's like... I mean, a lot of us that are listening to this probably live in San Francisco, have been out for like eons. They're so over the rainbow. But, you know, be supportive. That pride can make a huge difference in somebody's life. I mean, imagine the acceptance of seeing yourself walking down the street. So when depictions of lesbians first began to enter the mainstream, you know, Curve was right there to chronicle it. But I'm wondering, how do you feel about the current status of lesbian as an identity? And I'm asking this because in a lot of ways, the signifier gay is beginning to kind of fall out of style a little bit with younger generations. And I'm wondering if you sense any kind of shift in what it means to be a lesbian now. Well, that was one of the key elements we uh, we tackled in Ahead of the Curve in the movie is the L word still relevant today. And I was thinking, you know, it's, it's archaic. People, you know, don't want to use that. Only old school, you know, lesbians use that. And I was really actually happily surprised that the younger generation is starting to kind of reclaim that word. Um, I almost feel like I've come full circle. It was like when I first started the magazine, putting the word lesbian on the front cover was was ridiculed. It was, people thought, oh, that's too dangerous. Nobody's going to walk up to the newsstand to buy a thing that says lesbian on the front cover. As that word sort of, you know, started to become passe, I guess, me and my friends were like, okay, well, I'm lesbian, but I'm also queer. But I'm also a dyke, but I'm also, you know, whatever. But the younger generation, I felt like, wasn't so accepting of the word. Just going out to places making the movie and asking people that question, younger people that question, and also asking my son's kid friends, um, you know, what they think. And they're like, yeah, I'm totally a lesbian. I'm queer, but I'm also a lesbian. I'm like, okay. You know, it's like when lesbian chic happened, like maybe the word lesbian is cool again. I don't know. 
I mean, I hope it is, right? And you, you're, you're as invested in that word as anybody, right? I, I bet I am, yes. Are you familiar with the Instagram account Every Lesbian and Their Fashion? I am not, but I am a member of um, a few other fashion sites, including butch fashion sites. Which one's your favorite and why? You know, I just like that when people are able to be themselves. We used to do this article in Curve every month called What a Lesbian Looks Like. At the time when I started the magazine, you know, butch women had their place. It was like, In order to be identified by somebody else as a lesbian, you needed to wear the uniform. Like, do you have the Doc Martens? Do you have the, you know, the ripped jeans or the, you know, camouflage pants? Do you have, you know, the short crop It's still a really hot look, though. I mean, I just want to interrupt you and say it's a good look. I love now that, you know, that we were able to portray what a lesbian looks like as so many different things and kind of blow up that stereotype that says, you know, if you don't have your hair cut short and you don't do this and you don't do that, you don't belong in our community. That's, that's bullshit. You can say it. It's bullshit. (laughs) It is. It is. So back to this um, fashion site. Tell me. I want to hear. I mean, it's not a site per se. It's an Instagram account. Right, right, right. I have it open as a tab right now. I, I, follow, it's, I mean, it has 155,000 followers. So it's, it's every lesbian in their fashion. And it is really hot. It's yeah, just. I got to really, check it out. Yeah. I mean, some of these images are. Some of them are current and some are from the 90s and maybe earlier. But it is. Uh, it's good. It's smoldering. It's smoldering. It's I got, me, uh, yeah, yeah, I got to check that out because mm-hmm. I don't think I follow that one. Absolutely. Highly <laughs> recommended. Listen, I, I cannot thank you enough. This has been wonderful. I'm so glad to have this opportunity. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am truly honored. I hope we get to kick it again. Thanks. Right. Love to. Take Appreciate care. you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. This has been The Queerness, a production of San Francisco Pride, conceived and co-produced by my hardworking colleagues, Chris and RJB, and our much-missed former colleague, Shannon. Our magnificent guest on this episode was Franco Stevens, the original and now current publisher of groundbreaking lesbian magazine, Curve. Our theme music was composed by La Frida. We strongly encourage you to like and subscribe to us, which helps increase the queerness's visibility on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms, because you know we're all about queer visibility around here. I'm your sickening host, Peter Astrid Kane, reminding you to be safe, but stay dangerous. We'll see you next time.